Today's episode is sponsored by Baskerville Productions, the original Sherlock Holmes, and his Bakerfield Irregulars. Dive into the world of Sherlock Holmes in this quick-to-play, competitive, currency-based card drafting game. With the Baker Street Irregulars at your disposal, visit locations, gather witnesses, and inspect artifacts in order to make the key arrests. And manage your Irregulars wisely to earn bonuses to improve your chances of victory. Compete against other inspectors to earn Sherlock's status points as you work to earn the approval of the Master Detective. Or jump into solo mode where you take on Sherlock one-on-one. Check it out now, live on Kickstarter. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design, to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about majorities. We're talking about what it looks like for me to have more dudes or more money or more whatever than you have in that one spot so I get that cool thing. We're talking to John Valerhan. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, really glad you're here. Excited to talk to you about this. This is something I don't have a ton of experience in with the majorities-based games as far as designing, but I am a huge fan as far as uh, different majorities-based games that have already been published. I'm a big fan of some, you know, Smash Up and Ethnos and some of these that I'm excited to talk to you about and just kind of go do a little bit of a deep dive on this mechanism of of majorities. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. So, um, hi, I'm John Valahan, and I am a Quebecois game designer. Uh, I uh, started designing games about five years ago now, uh, and uh, I've been uh, designing a few things, pitching a few things here and there, and uh, a few uh, majority games, which is why I uh, reached out to you to uh, get on the show and talk about that. Awesome. And now, John, where are you from? I'm from Montreal. Gotcha, Montreal. Okay, that explains the uh, the name that's hard for me to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would it be so too cool. canadian to say i'm sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't worry about it uh you know if you if you were from i don't know uh, seattle washington i think your name would be hard for me to say from alabama so don't worry <laughs> about that but uh, i'm excited to talk to you about this so majorities what is that let's get a good little working definition what is a majority based game so i'm going to go with a very uh um, simple definition a majority uh, game is something a mechanism in a game where you uh want to have more of something than your opponents and you are that's pretty pretty straightforward yeah (laughs) isn't it um of course there's a lot of of nuances in there uh but uh i think that is the the easiest way to look at that yeah definitely and now i think a lot of times maybe majority games and area control games kind of get confused or maybe you know one gets put in the wrong bucket and so to speak so tell me what's the difference between like a majorities based game and just an area control game so i think it's it's um i think they're very similar i think it's something that's more related to um the theming behind it uh and the uh the abilities you have to um modify your standing in those majorities for example if you're thinking of uh, area major uh, area control. I'm sorry. Uh, you would think of games like uh, Blood Rage and and Kemet and those uh, dudes on a map games where you're moving around, you're taking other people's soldiers off, and uh, and so it's more about the movement and the uh, uh, the ability to take off and and, and uh, modify the state of the board or on those majorities while 
uh, in a majority uh, mechanism, you're more thinking about uh, how much do I invest on something? How, how strongly do I go into this uh, to make sure no one else catches up to me? Um, I think it's, it's more along those, how do you interact with the, the competition uh, that you would uh, differentiate the two? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It also seems like area control games typically don't have a mechanism where we can both be in the same place at the same time. Like, you know, if you're talking about different games like Kemet and whatnot, either either I'm there or you're there, and we're going to fight over who's going to get to be there. And yeah, if, yeah. if I win, I stay, and if you lose, you leave, versus majorities-based games, which you can have, you know, tons of different people in the same space all vying to have the majority, or in some cases to have second place or third place, depending on how the points break down or the rewards and things like that we'll, yeah. we'll get into. Uh, but also, like we were talking about before the show, it seems like also also maybe auction games can kind of get construed, misconflated in here too. So tell me about the difference between like an auction game versus a majority game. So so in all three cases, it, it's about having more of something than your opponents. I think the, the main uh, difference between auctions and, auctions and, mecha, and uh, majorities is that in auctions, you're probably going to be uh, spending whatever you, you bid, uh, or at least the person who wins the bid will. Uh, and in majorities, usually you're going to keep those uh, in place uh, after you evaluate the majority. Um, I think there's also a, a, um, an idea of uh, the majority is uh, evaluated after a period of time. While when we do an auction, we focus on the auction, we do that. And as we uh, finish bidding, we get the answer right now and we're not focusing on anything else in between. Uh, of course, you know, we're, we're trying to draw a line through a spectrum here. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of uh, arbitrary where, where we make that difference. Uh, but I think that's, that's kind of, um, of where those two are, are, are separated. Yeah, that makes sense. It also seems like the, the context or, or the style of game that you're playing, you know, if you're doing all these things for houses, it's probably more of an auction game versus doing it for, for territories or, or things like that. So it also seems yeah. like the theme has a role to play as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, uh, if we go back to the difference between the area control and majority, uh, uh, something like Blood Rage where you have soldiers on a map uh, and you're, you want to have more soldiers than your opponents, then that's area control. But in Ethnos, you're, you play cards which represent soldiers to put tokens on a map and then that's area control. So it's, it's a bit, uh, you know, sometimes we draw the line where we decide that line should be drawn and it, it sort of stops there. Yeah. Now you said area control. Did you mean majority on Ethnos? Uh, I, I, I might, I might have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. so Ethnos is one of my favorite games. And actually let's, let's kind of talk through some of these kind of all time, great games or just really good examples of majority based game. Let's talk about Ethnos. How does that one work and what makes it a really good majorities based game? So, yeah, sure. So one of the things I think is really, uh, really stands out to me about Ethnos in uh, how it deals with the majorities is the, those dragon cards, right? Because in majority games, usually you, uh, what a majority does is you don't know uh, when you start doing an action, how much you're going to get from it. You don't know when you place a, a token on a, on a territory in Ethnos, how many points you're going to get from that. Uh, and so you want to play in the territory as late as you can to have a better idea of how much everything will be worth to you. Um, and it, in Ethnos, they kind of mitigate that by uh, putting those dragon cards, which you don't know when when you're going to be uh, evaluating those those majorities. And so if there, if uh, the second dragon card comes out, then you're, everybody starts uh, panicking and playing those cards while, uh, and then the third one comes out, everybody is, you know, everybody kind of, uh, uh, throws their hands up in the air at the same time and 
and then we, we started scoring points. Well, if everybody knew when the deck runs out, that's when we, we score, then people would stop. Uh, people would, would not uh, play their cards before they had to. Uh, people would, would hold up everything till the end, and then you start getting to that kind of stale game where, where not much happens. So I think there's a lot uh, there's a lot of that 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 tension that comes from those dragon cards, uh, and also the fact that there are three. So you you know you don't want to wait until the third one comes out. Uh, uh, when uh, until the first one comes out, then everybody's kind of chill and doing their stuff. Then the first one comes out, people start sweating, and then when the second one comes out, you, people just start dropping their cards as soon as they can, and 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 uh, uh, that it builds up that tension, which is uh, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that's definitely one of the best parts of the game uh, because you you don't know when the scoring is going to happen. And so you're jockeying for position, you know, trying to take over territories, trying to put your tokens in different places to gain points, you know, when when the evaluation does happen. But you're mm-hmm. always thinking, oh, one one more turn, exactly. one more turn. And then you're, it's kind of a push your luck thing as well because you're, you're not entirely sure when that third dragon card is going to come out. And it creates exactly. just, like you said, interesting tension that it's, it's a lot of fun because you don't know it. So you're always thinking, oh, should I lay down the cards now or should I wait? And it's it's interesting. Now, tell me about the scoring in Ethnos and how does it work? So, so in Ethnos, you have that thing where every territory has uh, three values, which are, are set up at the beginning of the game randomly, uh, which are the first, second, and third place uh, value of uh, for, for, for those uh, for when you evaluate the majorities. And so, uh, and I think there's there's this twist where in the first round you only evaluate third place, and then as you go along, the, the points get higher. Um, but it, it makes it so that every territory is worth a different value to everyone. And not only is it uh, this one is worth more, it's this one has a, a big first place, which is worth 10 points, but second and third are worth zero. But this one over there, uh, like the blue territory, however, has eight, six, and four, so it's more balanced, but it's worth a bit less at the top. So how much do I want to invest on each of those? And also knowing that uh, everybody sees that same information. So if one of them is worth a lot of points, everybody's going to go there. So am I might better off going to the smaller one, which is worth fewer points, but I might win that one on, on a one or a two uh, tokens. So I think this is where the, the majorities become interesting because it's not, it's about how much do I have to put in to get out what this would give me. Yeah, for sure. And you also get this like, you know, trying to trying to be the most efficient that you can. You don't want to win a majority. You don't want to win one of those territories by five. You want to win it by one. Exactly. Like you want to barely win. And that way you have extra pieces that can be in other territories trying to get you more points. And also that, that decision space of, OK, do I invest in this one? That's all or nothing. I get 10 or zero. Or do I want to kind yeah. of hedge my bets and put them in different places where I'm guaranteed to get four to get five? You know, I won't get that big payout. But at the same time, I'll, I'll be more consistent across the board. And that's just a cool decision that has to be made for a game that only takes 20 minutes, 25 minutes. It's a very short game overall, but there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of fun. Uh, like you said, there's a lot of moments of like throwing your cards up in the air because it didn't work out the way you had hoped. So that's yeah, is, yeah. is a great game that I definitely suggest people people check out. Let's look at some of these other ones. Let's look at uh, New York Slice, which is a pizza game, kind of an I, uh, I choose, let's see, I split, <laughs> you choose style yeah, exactly. game with majority in there. So tell me more about it. So in, in New York Slice, you have, uh, I think it's uh, seven different types of pizzas. And each of those types has uh, so different toppings, and it has a number associated to it, with which represents how many of of that type are in the um, well deck, for lack of a better word. They're not cards; they're 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 um, they're triangle tiles. But um, uh, so in the deck, there are that many, and that's how many points you get if you have the most. And so every turn, somebody will cut up the pizza, and people will go around, and each player is going to take one stack, and um, 
And then at the end, after I think it's five rounds, whoever has the most of each type will uh, will score uh, that many points. So the ones that have, I think the top one is 11 uh, pieces. So the one that, that requires 11 pieces, you probably need, what, four or five slices to get the majority, but it's 11 points. While the four, you might win it with two, but it's only four points. So it, it's, again, that whole uh, how much do I have to put in to get that. Um Thing. One that's really interesting with uh, with New York Slice is that as the the cutter, you have kind of that that interesting uh, situation that comes up sometimes where you have a small a small lead on one of the types, and you can see that there are enough uh, pieces of that type on the board that somebody could catch up to you. But you can split them so that uh, if there are two and you're only one ahead, you split them, and then suddenly. No, no one person can take both of those because everybody only takes one part of the of the pizza. Yeah, and I guess that's really the the spot you're trying to put yourself in, exactly. <laughs> you know, to, to set yourself so people can't catch you, they can't beat you. Uh, and so, tell me a little bit more about that one. It, it seems it's such a simple game, but it seems to have yeah. a little bit more depth to it. So, what am I thinking? You know, as as I'm splitting these, and like you just said, if I can look at the board and see, okay, I've got a small uh, lead right now. I want to make sure I do this you know, yeah. so that I, I maintain so, it. What else am I thinking though? So one of the things uh, in in in, uh, in majority games in general that is really uh, um, complex for especially for new players is to try to gauge the value of everything, right? So in in New York Slice, uh, they have this uh, this thing where every and now I'm I can only recall the the cake version piece of cake which has those dollops of cream. I don't know what they're uh, what they are in the New York Slice version because I haven't played that in a bit. But uh, and so when you take a piece, you can either keep it for the majority or uh, eat it and square it for the number of dollops of cream or I think it's pepperonis in the uh, in the New York slice version. And uh, so it gives you that first level uh, strategy of, uh, OK, if I want to if I have, say, 21 uh, pieces of, of pepperoni on the pizzas uh, and I want to cut it into four somewhat equal uh, servings then I'm going to try to go for about five or six for each of them. And from there you can go, okay, I, now these are, 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 are the four somewhat equal. And now how can I play with them to make them more advantageous to me by splitting up ones that, that would give, that would help someone beat me in a majority. How would I, um, uh, you know, give a little bit less to somebody who, who would get two or three of the same color, because that is a bit stronger. And that way, since everybody chooses before me, if every one of those stacks is somewhat stronger, then I can get an easier, a better one in the end, right? Yeah, another thing that's interesting about that mechanism is that it helps players not feel as bad when they get things that they can't use, right? Exactly. So, you know, if, if you had to put something in a, in a, in a spot, you know, or if, if you're talking about a game like Ethnos, all right, I have to put this cube, I have to put this token over here. I'm not going to win. This is useless. And so it doesn't feel great. But with right. New York Slice, it's like, okay, well, this is useless to me. I'm not going to win this. I'm not going to get any points from it. But I can cash it in so you know I can eat the pizza and gain this extra weight, you know, do this extra thing to gain some points. And that's just kind of a yeah. cool way to help and, players feel better. Right. And not only that, but it's also, you know, you were saying you want to win just barely. But here, if you're a bit ahead and people start eating their slices, then when you get a slice that you're ahead on, you don't need to keep it for the majority because you're pretty sure nobody's going to catch up. You can start eating those too. And then it becomes a push. How much do I need to stay safe in that majority? And how much, you know, how, uh, if, if I'm behind, do I start adding them just so the person in the lead cannot just eat everything? So there's this sort of, 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 of uh, metagame that comes up from that. And uh, it makes it, uh, it adds more tension. And it keeps it always tight also. There's, not, there's never someone who runs away with all of one type because 
you know, you're, you're incentivized to just eat whatever is that, whatever extra you have. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go a little old school and let's look at Lancaster. It's a game that came out a long time ago. Uh, tell yeah. me about that one. How does it work? So, so Lancaster is a, it's a worker placement games, but your workers have, have levels. So you can go in. Uh, so if I have a, a level four knight, I can go and bump your level three knight uh, out of a space to, to be able to do that. And one of the spaces is, uh, so it's a war against the, the French because in, in Lancaster you are uh, a British uh, lords, I guess. And um, and so when you go there, you are participating in, in a majority uh, contest against the French and whoever has the most levels of knight over there will win that many points and so on and so forth. However, the interesting thing in Lancaster is that at the end of the round, you know, in Ethnos, we're talking about the dragons. In Lancaster, you know exactly when the majority is going to score. However, uh, there's a thing where you, uh, you're only going to score the majority if a certain amount of strength is reached. Uh, so if you have enough knights there to win the war, then you're going to score points. If not, you're going to get fewer points and your workers are going to be stuck on that tile for an extra round. And so you probably cannot win that war on your own. So what you're going to do is you're going to want to place uh, knights in there that make you uh, get the majority when it's going to score. But you're also going to want to make sure other people come to your help to make sure that you can pull off the win, but not give them so much room that they can come in and help you win, but also then take your first place away from you. So it's it's a sort of a, a chicken game in there where you don't want to go in first because then you start sort of at a disadvantage. But if nobody goes, then the war is never going to be fought. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about this one is really, in my opinion, the components. So normally these games have tokens and you add extra ones or you have you know, bigger numbers. But with this one, the pieces actually get bigger with the stronger the knight is. So the level one knight is a small wooden piece. And then the level three or four, it's it's much taller. It's much bigger. So you can kind of see it on the table and it's just a really cool visual. And now remind me, how do the knights level up, though? How does that system uh, So, So it's, it's part of the worker placement action. Some of the actions allow you to level up your knights. There's nothing uh, fancy about that one. <laughs> but the, the interesting part of that is, like you said, it's easy to see at a glance if you're ahead because your stack is going to be bigger than, than the other player. So, sort of like in, in Ethnos, those towers. Uh, well, in some of those games, you have to go, okay, how, much, how many do you have of this? How many do you have of that? And uh, it starts getting into the sort of too much minutia for what it's worth. Uh, and people stop, uh, uh, people sort of, of lose track of, of where everybody is at. Well, in this one, it's just, it's very easy to, to uh, it's a quick glance and you know exactly what the situation is. Yeah, definitely. I think these games kind of lend themselves to analysis paralysis sometimes, especially when you're calculating uh, almost the calculus, the algorithm of the points. And if I do hit this and go over there and who's got what the, in this spot. And, and so Lancaster makes it so much easier just to look at the table one quick glance. OK, I can tell Bob has this. Susan has that. I have this. And you can just tell because of the size of the different nights as opposed to having to count each individual thing. And it makes it so much quicker. And it's something I wish more games would do is just kind of think about this visual aspect more so than just numbers of things, but also just like the size of things. Uh, or I guess even you could use shapes. Shapes another way to maybe maybe do this. But it's just something to think about as a designer to make the game easier to grasp at a glance. Yeah, um, I, I there's uh, I used to I, I worked on this game for a bit where you had uh, you wanted to have the majority with cards of multiple things and each card allowed you to uh, work on the majorities in, in color, shape, and numbers. Uh, 
Uh, and so you played a card that had four uh, red circles. So you were uh, you were working on the four majority, on the circle majority, and on the red majority. And it, it, it became such a, a, it was a really interesting mechanism, at least I think so, of trying to work on, on fight on multiple fronts at every time. But it was such a hassle to, to go around and try to visualize how much everyone had because, you know, you're, you're sort of, your brain goes to a, to, to color first, and then you have to go to the next level of calculating how many cars you have that have four of something, and it becomes such a, it adds, it, it it's time that you take, and time and brain power that you use to just understand what's going on and not make an interesting decision, and that's not something, I don't think anybody uh, likes to do that. Yeah, it's definitely a lot to keep track of, but I could see it working well if the game's only 20 minutes or 25 minutes or something like that, where it's, yeah. it is a lot to keep track of, but it's it's in such a short amount of time that one, you don't feel bad if you totally just screwed up the exactly. algebra, yeah, yeah. you know, and mess it up. Like, oh, I lost, you know, it, it, it took 20 minutes. But also it's just uh, when it's when it doesn't last that long, it's not long enough for your brain to like get exhausted from all the different calculations and things like that. So I think it could work. Uh, just maybe if it's a shorter uh, game, is, is that kind of what you ran into? Maybe the game lasted too long and just too much yeah, to think about? Because, yeah, because of how, how complicated it was for people to keep track of everything. It ended up being, you know, it took six turns to get through the game and it still took 45 minutes and you're like oh if, if it takes me just five six seven minutes just to go through my turn it's not like nothing interesting is going to happen here yeah it's also a lot of time for people just to sit there and watch you do math in your head right <laughs> so i think downtime is another big issue to think about with majorities games and so you're, you're wanting the games to kind of move along quickly uh and, and and not give people too much time just to sit there and twiddle their thumbs or look at their phone yeah, especially in, in a game, like in majority games, usually a lot of, of the um, of those majorities can change over time. So there's really not a lot of planning you can do because things are so dynamic. Uh, yeah. And so then that means you have to do all that calculation uh, from scratch every turn or, or almost. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these games are able to be played with large player counts as well. I think Ethnos goes up to at least five, maybe six I players. Think, I think it plays six, yeah. Yeah, and so that's a lot that happens between my turn and the next time I get to go. If you know four or five other people are going to be changing the board, they're going to be taking cards out of the deck, which gets us closer to that third dragon. It's just a lot to think about, and so the game changes drastically if I'm playing with three players versus you know five or six. And so that's another interesting thing that, about these style of games is how much chaos can happen, and maybe something you want to be aware of as a designer and. and maybe not introduce too much more chaos. And we'll talk about smash up in a second, which is just chaos, the game, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, it's just something to think about. Like what kind of game are you designing? All right, let's talk about uh, Alhambra. This is, you know, you're building, you've got, it's a tile placement game. You're building basically cool stuff in the desert. So how does that one work? So, so Alhambra, like you said, is a tiling game. It's, uh, it's about buying tiles, putting them in your, your palace, your Alhambra. And, and, uh, every uh, three times throughout the game, you're going to be evaluating how many of each color of tiles you have. So there are six colors of tiles, uh, and uh, some of them are rarer than others. And uh, so these have, uh, like in, in uh, New York Slice or Ethnos, these are worth more points if you have the majority at, at every scoring, but they also require, uh, also harder to get the majorities of because there are more of them. And so uh, what happens in the Alhambra is you have four tiles available to be bought, and when you buy one, of course, another one becomes available for everyone else. And because of uh, the majority scoring, a tile is not really that good unless it helps you um, score a majority, right? So you can 
uh, if there are some tiles over there in colors that you're not really a part of, then there's no point in, in, in fighting over them. Um, but uh, one interesting thing about Alhambra is that, like in, in Ethnos with those dragons, you have you don't really know when those coins are going to happen. You have those, you have that that uh, money deck, which you can either on your turn take money cards or buy tiles with that money, uh, and you're uh, eventually at some point during the deck, the scoring cards are going to come out, and that means that you we do scoring right there and then. Um, so, yeah, so so there's, again, this tension of, I, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to happen, but there's also uh, an aspect of, uh, in, in Alhambra, if you buy a tile paying exactly its cost and not overpaying, you can play an extra turn. Um, and so that feels really great, but it also means that... Uh, Sometimes you want to play all those extra turns to take all of those tiles, but that means you're potentially getting a lot of tiles that don't really help you score points and opening up four new tiles, for example, to, to whoever plays next, which are you know tiles that they're going to have first dibs on and, and you won't. Yeah. Now, now, am I remembering right that placement of tiles matters in the game? Like you put certain things next to other things that gives you different bonuses and things like that? Um, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of uh, expansion stuff in Alhambra, so uh, maybe some of the those expansions do that. There's a, a wall aspect where some of the tiles have walls, and uh, those limit your, your further placement, uh, and you get extra points for having like uh, a long connected wall, uh, but uh, but there's no uh, adjacency thing like in, uh, in suburbia or between the cities, for example. Gotcha. And so, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. Then um, I like the visual because you get to build it out. You know what I mean? Like people love to create stuff and it's really cool how you start the game and you've got nothing in front of you. And by the end of it, you have this giant, you know, tile based thing that you've kind of created. So it also kind of gives you a visual feel good kind of feeling as you, you know, kind of expand your Alhambra. Yeah. And there's one one interesting uh, part of Alhambra is, you know, exact uh, you know that all the tiles are going to come out during a game and you know exactly how many tiles of each color are in the bag. Which means that in the beginning, uh, uh, you know, if there are seven blue tiles, you're going to need four to get the majority. But throughout the game, everyone is going to grab some of them. So maybe uh, by the halfway point, you only need three to get the majority. Eventually, because they're so spread out, you only need two now. And so at some point you can go, you know what, my, my blue majority is safe. I don't have to go for blue anymore. I can focus on other stuff. And that kind of takes away that that cognitive load that can lead to all this uh uh, this math, all this uh, algebra that you, you have going on in your head, uh, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, definitely. And it also kind of creates an interesting place where people who have played the game before might have a pretty distinctive advantage over people who have oh, never yeah. played it, just because if they understand the numbers, and if those gamers you know that have played before aren't sharing the numbers of how many tiles are in the bag, it will kind of get that home field advantage, so to speak. And so it's just something to uh, take into account. Do you want to make that open information or if you're making a game like this do you want to have you know a hundred possible tiles but you only ever use 75 during the game so there's always that you know i don't know if there's 10 of these or maybe this game there's only three of these who knows how mm-hmm. the, the tiles broke it's just interesting things to think about from a game design standpoint as far as what you want to want to know do you want the players to have that perfect information or do you want it to have that tension of well i'm not entirely sure how many of this color are going to come out this game maybe it'd be five maybe it'd be 20 you know depending on how you want to lay things out yeah, and it's sort of like like in every everything else in games. The more chaos you have, the more that people, the less people will tend to calculate stuff because you don't have perfect information. But also, the more people will tend to go, oh, well, if only that card had been there, I, I would have scored so much better, right? Yeah, absolutely. They can blame the game. They can blame the universe for exactly. their, <laughs> their their last place finish. All right, let's uh, look at another game. It's a little old school. 
let's look at Acquire. Now, this is a kind of a stock market game. How does it work? Yeah, so uh, yeah, Acquire is quite old school. Um, it's a stock market game. So you're, you're again, placing tiles on a board, and uh, those tiles eventually become uh, hotel chains. And as they grow, they grow in value. But uh, really, the, the stock market part is not the interesting part. It's the fact that once you have two hotel chains that uh, merge, so once you place the tile that merge those two, uh, there's uh, a scoring that happens, and the smaller hotel chain is acquired by the bigger one. And so the bigger one's value goes up, and the smaller one, uh, there is sort of a, a payout that goes to the, uh, the, the, uh, the majority shareholder and the second uh, shareholder in there, which I, I like to call like the president and the vice president uh, shares. And so what you want to do is you want to get as you want to get as close to that majority as you can. And if potentially you know exactly which of those, if you hold one of those tiles that can trigger a scoring, you want to hold on to it until exactly the right time. So contrary to what we're talking about with Ethnos, where you don't know when that's going to happen. In this one, you want to wait until you have a tile that makes it score before you start investing in it so that you can control exactly when it's going to happen. Yeah, definitely. Now it has a very interesting board where it kind of has this big grid. It's it's kind of it's not the best looking thing in the world, but it's, it's not. Super yeah, it functional. kind of shows its tell, age. Tell me, yeah, <laughs> but tell me how it works. Could you have all like these numbers and these letters kind of going together? Like, what's going on there, and that kind of creates the majority. Right. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. So the board goes from from A to J, I think, and from one to twelve, maybe. And so you have every tile is a, a number and a letter that is a spot on those those things. And once two tiles uh, connect, that becomes a hotel chain. And once it grows, then the value of the chain grows with it. And uh, if you place a tile that connects to, like I said, it, it triggers the scoring. Uh, but the, the majority aspect is in the share. So after you place a tile, you can buy new shares uh, with your money. But the thing is you don't get new money unless there's a merger. So if you spend early, then you kind of show your cards to everyone else. And like I said, people are not going to trigger a scoring if they know they're not getting the bigger end or well, unless they're, they're paying, playing poorly. Um, but um, so, so you want to hold on until the very last minute, like, like we talked about earlier, when you have the best information you can. And however, you, there's a limit to how much you can invest in each company, each turn, every turn you can only buy three shares, which means that if you're, six or seven shares behind it's going to take you uh you know a few turns before you can get to uh have a better uh, a higher majority than than somebody else and uh so you can't wait until the very last minute and also there's a limit to how many cards of each uh how many shares of each color there are so there are only 25 in the game so in a four-player game it comes down to the same thing we're talking about uh for alhambra uh if somebody holds 13 of those 25, they're certain that they're going to hold that majority. And sometimes you're only one behind, but there's no cards of that color left. So, you know, you're kind of stuck with second place now. Yeah. Now, this is a game, maybe more so than the other ones, that has really just stood the test of time. It's oh, been yeah. reprinted over and over and over again. It's had new new versions, new editions, new artwork, new printings. Like, what is it about this game in particular that's really stood the test of time? Like, why do people keep coming back to it? That's a very good question. I think uh, I think a big part of it is it, it kind of it's um, you know you, the question you're asking is basically how do you make it a game that will sell that many copies and if I knew I, I wouldn't be <laughs> I wouldn't be uh, 
sitting in my basement after work uh, talking about game design, I'd be doing it full time instead. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I think it's I think it it's the fact that it can it can attract uh, both uh, casual players and 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 more um, heavy uh, you know hobby players because it has many different levels of of strategy you can approach it at. You know, you can go oh it's just you know place tiles it grows my my company grows I get more money I buy stuff I sell stuff and you can stop there or you can play it at this you know, uh, um, a really cutthroat level of, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to hold on to these tiles because I don't want to advantage you and I'm going to wait until exactly the right second so that it, it, it basically, uh, uh, there's the, there's uh, going to be new cards available right when nobody else has money so I have control over everything and you can kind of choke everyone else out of, of their opportunities. And so there's the, these different levels of play that kind of uh, attract different people, which I think is what makes it a hit with many different folks and uh that's probably why also there are not a lot of, of good games that came out 50 years ago which is why there are not a lot of 50 year old games anymore <laughs> that people still play <laughs> yeah that's a good point that's a good point it, it has really aged well compared to a lot of other games that came out you know when it did it's just interesting to think about it's also it's not a short game i mean it's 90 minutes an hour and a half maybe two hours depending on the the group or how many uh, players you got oh, and so uh, maybe, maybe i've played it too much i i can played in, in a lot shorter than that but uh you know it, it is longer than than like an ethnos or a, a new york slides for sure yeah so you wouldn't necessarily think that it would be as popular as it is but at the same time it is it's not super complicated to understand but it does have a lot of meat to it as far as the way the game works together and i think that's really one of the things that makes a great evergreen game is you know the rules are pretty simple to comprehend but still there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of interesting choices that can be made. A lot of things, the way the game can change over time. And so maybe it's just uh, found a way to tap into kind of that as far as how, how it plays. Now let's look at another one. Let's, let's look at a Gaia project. This is one I don't have as much experience with, but it's one of the top maybe 10 uh, games of all time. And so tell me about how it works and how the majority system works in that game. Cause it's, it's more of a secondary mechanism. And I want to talk oh, about that in a minute, it how is. that works. Um, but so, work? so, right. So Gaia project is the, the sort of retheme slash second edition of, of Terra Mystica. Right. And then, in, in Terra Mystica, you had those cult tracks that you went up on to, uh, to get majorities and uh, you got uh, extra stuff uh, during the game. And there was this thing where at the end of the game, you would get bonus points for having the biggest civilization, which is the most um, buildings that are connected on the map. And so uh, in Gaia Project, what they did is uh, actually two major things. The first thing they did is they gave you a lot of uh, different things you can uh, go for during the game. And so at the beginning of every game, you take out, I think, two out of probably six uh, potential objectives that have come in the box. And so it, it makes it so that every game is a bit different because you're pushed towards different things. Uh, and the other big thing that they changed is that they added... Uh, Terra Mystica was, was uh, um, sold as a two to five player games. Very few people would play it at two because of that majority aspect, which gave a lot of points in second place for somebody who would just do a little bit of something, which is a problem you, you often run into in, in majority games. Uh, you know, the fact that you can sometimes get a lot of points for just a, a tiny investment. And sometimes it's a bug, sometimes it's a feature. But in Gaia Project, they solved that in the two-player game by uh, putting on every objective, there's sort of a, a like a dummy third-player value, which says that for this, if you want to get, uh, there's going to be this dummy player, which has a value of seven of uh, whatever the, the majority is on. Let's say it's on who has the most buildings. 
the dummy player is going to have seven buildings. So if nobody beats seven, then you're fighting for second place. And if you want to get uh, second place from your opponent, uh, uh, if your opponent runs away with first place and you want to get the points for the second place, you still need to beat that seven. So you can just go, okay, you're, you're going on that. I'm going to ignore it and still get the, the uh, 12 or, or, or 10 points for second place. I don't remember how much that is. Um, yeah, that's it's something a lot of games run into as a challenge when you're playing with two players, right? If the yeah. game is at its sweet spot with three or four, and then you're going down to two, some of these kind of weird balancing things happen. Like you're saying, where I can just put one dude over here and I can get second place. Well, that's not the way the game is meant to work. And so what are, like you talk about dummy player, what are some other ways a designer can kind of uh, balance that out for lower player counts? Any other games that come to mind or any other ways of doing it that kind of make good sense as far as this goes? Yeah, I think I think a big part of of, of uh, what makes this a recurring issue is that a lot of, of players have this um, bad perception of, of uh, the the terminology dummy player, right? Because it's it's extra upkeep and it, it's a game that doesn't really work with two. You need that extra third player that we need to take care of uh, to make keep the game moving. But in a game like Gaia Project, it just that set value. It's just there to balance stuff out. You. Uh, you, you don't have any upkeep to do. You just look at it at the, at the end uh, to know uh, which position you have. Um, I think there are ways to uh, modify that and, and make it interesting in a two-player game. For example, in, uh, I'm working on a two-player uh, area control game where um, so players are, uh, it's, it's a, a prohibition era, a gangster kind of theme. And so players are going to be placing influence in uh, different districts, and they're going for uh, majorities to get those uh, th- those um, illegal goods that they can then smuggle to get points. And so the third player is uh, the police. So it's it's like in Gaia Project, it's a dummy player that's there just so you can't just put one cube and forget about it and still get second place. You still need to beat the police if you want to get the if you want to get something out of it. But uh, there are many ways to influence how much of the police goes there. You know, you can thematically bribe the cops to go into your, your other player's business. You can, uh, you know, uh, you can shoot at some of the cops to uh, make them go away. And uh, thematically, you know, no cop is hurt in that story. Um, but, uh, you know, th- there's this extra way of, of interacting with that without adding a third player you have to take care of. I think another uh, interesting thing is uh, in uh, Seven Wonders Duel, there's this, uh, the war track, right? Where you're trying to pull uh, the, the the war token on your side, which is in the end, just a majority thing. But it's not just having the most uh, armies. It's how, how big that difference is means that you're going to be scoring more and more for it. And there's also the point where at some point you just automatically win if you have such a big edge on your opponent's military. Um, and so you have to keep track of it, even if you're behind, just because you can't, you, you couldn't come back from a, an instant win from your opponent, right? Yeah, I love that mechanism in that game. Yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, don't worry about the war cards. Don't worry about them at all. Don't worry about them to the point where I would just win automatically and we don't even have to count points. Exactly. <laughs> it's just exactly. A, a cool way to handle it. And it seems like there's a couple of different ways you can do dummy players that, that are interesting. One is, you know, maybe you draw a card and it just tells you, it's almost like an AI. It just tells yeah. you, hey, put tokens here. This happens. And you don't have to think. You just have to do what the card says. But then I've also seen games where, you know, the uh, the players kind of take agency over the dummy player and maybe take turns. And then you're able to use that dummy player to affect 
the game, hopefully to help you and to hurt your opponent. And to kind of go back and forth as, as almost like you have split control over that dummy third player. And that's also an interesting thing because then it becomes an extra part of the strategy for the two player game is how are you going to use the dummy player for yourself and against your opponents. So There's a couple, you know, a few different ways you can you can think through how you want to balance the game out for two players. Yeah. However, I think I think you need to find um, um, either a, a thematic reason or a, a sort of a twist on how you present it, so that it's not people just going, "Oh, of course, a dummy player. I need to. It's not a two player game for real." And there's sort of this this um, this bias people have against it. And so if you find a, a reason for it to be it, for it to make sense in the game, then people, I think, I, well, I've found with my with my uh, gangster game that they're, you know, they go along with it. Yeah, and like you're saying, it makes sense. Okay, I am bribing this third player, the police, to do these things. It makes sense thematically, and I think you bring up a good point. Try to make it make sense so it doesn't feel tacked on, it doesn't feel pasted on at the end. Like you were the designer, like, oh, shoot, uh, the game's about to go to print, and I should probably do a two-player version. (laughs) Because that never (laughs) goes over well. You want to make it at least seem like you meant to do it all along. Yeah. All right, let's look at one of my favorite games, and maybe kind of the game that's just the epitome for uh, majorities, and that's Smash Up. Tell me about Smash Up, just the chaotic game that it is. What makes it interesting? What makes it a majority space game? So, so I think I think that chaos is exactly what makes it interesting. So, of course, there's the there's the whole thematic aspect of oh, I'm sending my my zombies on on the back of a cybernetic uh, T Rex towards your your samurais or whatever, uh, and so that has just appeal on its own. But mechanically, there's this really interesting um, uh, aspect of, of of the cards in your hand you have to decide where they're going and you have that many different competitions you're fighting on at the same time and you can't go necessarily exactly where you want to go because uh you have to take into consideration those those break points which are sort of uh, uh at once there's this much uh power uh in cards that are played on that uh on that base it's going to score so sometimes you want to play your cards in a different order so that you can build up right before you can pull off the, the, the scoring. But there's also a limit to how much you can do before your opponents can react to it because you can only play one card, one, um, uh, uh, they're not called creature. What are they called? Um, units? Something like that? Yeah. Minions? So, min- oh, yeah, minions. You can only play one minion every turn. So everything you do, other players can react to. And, of course, there are the multiple... Uh, uh, abilities and and special cards and everything breaks the rules in, in different ways. So um, so definitely chaos and actually so much chaos that you don't get into that whole um, calculations of things because so much happens between two turns that you know who knows how <laughs> who knows when it's going to score unless you can make it score this turn and you have the edge you're sort of of uh, you know uh, playing odds there. Yeah, talk about a game that's pretty simple to learn. Like I've taught it to kids, you know, they were 10 years old, 11 years old, and they, they get it. They get it right off the bat. Oh, okay, this is how you play. I, I can only play one card a turn, whatever. But yeah. then you have a billion different ways that the game can play out just because there's so many, just at this point, so many, just a ridiculous number of expansions right. uh, and different ways the cards can interact. And, and you've got, you know, you, <laughs> I'm trying to think some of the crazy ones. You, you talk about zombies and, and T-Rexes, but now it's like My Little Pony and, and oh, Star really? Trek. <laughs> wow. or you know it's it's i don't know if they got the actual ip i think they just did yeah, a, it, a bit it, of a rip it's off. a legally but, different uh, <laughs> thing about ponies and, and colors and yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely and so there's just so many different combinations and there's no way the game is balanced but it doesn't matter right the balance yeah. is not a big deal for this particular game because it, yeah. it's gonna the way it's gonna play out but talk about a game that just you could play one card and it drastically changes the entire right. game right. just because of the way the, the cards 
mess with each other and so yeah yeah it's it's, it's the it's when we're talking about earlier uh, going between like balancing between chaos and 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 calculation it's it goes ex- straight into that that uh that chaos end of the spectrum and you're I think one of the big things, aside from all the powers and all of that, which there are too many options for you to keep track of what every player can do, uh, yeah. just the fact that those cards, those you know, one card is not one value. It it it, it uh, some of them have a, a one strength, and I think it goes up to six or seven. And so if I if I'm I am ahead by five, then do you have a six in your hand? Is there even a six in that deck? And so you, you you're you're sort of uh, you, you can have those big swings of, of power one way or the other compared to like an Ethnos where you can go up one at a time, maybe two with some crazy combos, but here you, you're never safe in anything. Yeah, and I think one of the things that Smash Up really taps into, and one of the reasons it's, it's become so popular and had so many expansions, is it helps people feel smart. Just the way the game has all these combinations and the way that you know, the yeah. cards can... Uh, combo and, and work together and work against some players and work for others and the way they chain and create crazy moments it helps people feel really intelligent when they you know when they pull something off they play <laughs> one card that affects that card and affects this other card and does this thing over here and now this area is going to score and when it scores i get to move this card to this other area so it scores and i get all these points it just makes you feel really smart it's a lot of fun and this is another game that you don't necessarily always want to win first place you, you might want to get second you might want to get yeah. third depending on how the the area uh, scores or, or the effect that it has and so you might be playing for second and then you, you push somebody else so that they win and they get first and they get the detriment or they get the negative points whatever it is and so it's just an interesting kind of game that doesn't take very long but there's lots of moments that you get to feel smart you get to feel clever and i think that's one of the reasons people love it yeah definitely yeah and it, it, it's so much chaos that also you can play like you said you can play with a, a 10 year old and still you have no idea they might they might very well beat you even if you have like 20 games of experience with that one it's no, uh, they might yeah. beat you accidentally <laughs> the way the cards yeah. were, you know they're like i want to play my dinosaur here you're like well why would you do oh no you win you know, it's like, <laughs> well, that's just the way it goes. Right, right. <laughs> all right so we, we've talked through we've kind of broken down a lot of these different games a lot of the kind of the classics a lot of games that i think if you want to make a game like this you should be playing these games to at least understand kind of how the mechanism works where we've been kind of the foundation the you know the standing on the shoulders of giants so to speak if you want to design a majority space game definitely play one two probably all of these games to figure it out. <laughs> Let's talk about a few more concepts, just kind of general concepts about these games. Let's talk a little bit more about incentives. How, as a designer, can I incentivize players to do different actions, to go different places, for things to matter? What are, some, what are, what are your thoughts on that? So um, one of the biggest things in majorities, like we talked about earlier, is you want to go there, you want to invest in something one, once you know how much you can get back from it, as much as you can, right? Um, so you have to incentivize players to then go invest in, in one of those majorities early because if not, then people are going to wait until the very end and you uh, get into that um, stale game state where nothing happens because it's like this, this game of chicken. Um, so there are many uh, ways of doing that. Uh, for example, in, in Alhambra or in, um, in uh, Acquire, you have uh, a limited amount of... of, of uh, majority tokens that you can get into each of those majorities so if you don't grab them while they're there you might just lose that opportunity and somebody else will get it before you uh in the games like uh in lancaster you have 
an incentive. You have a, just a straight up bribe to go uh, into one of the wars earlier. You get an extra action if you go. And the earlier you go, the better uh, the choices, because, you know, when somebody takes one of those those bonuses, it's not there for the other players. But you have to think about a way to push your players to um, to invest on those majorities before right right before it scores. If not, then nothing happens until that point when it becomes important. Yeah, and speaking of incentives, I love how Alhambra gives you an extra action if you pay with exact change. Like you don't you don't need to make change; you pay the exact amount for a tile because then you can incentivize players to do certain things that maybe they normally wouldn't. Maybe that tile is not super advantageous for whatever reason, but because of that extra rule that says, "Hey, you get an extra action if you pay for it," you know, in full then they might take that tile just because they want to get the extra action. So I think there's always different ways that you can kind of prod and push players to do different things just by, you know, creating uh, the game space that pushes them towards it, you know, creating uh, bonuses or rewards yeah, exactly. incentivize that play. Yeah. And you want to incentivize action and not holding back and turtling and waiting until the perfect moment, because if everybody waits for the perfect moment, nothing moves and nothing happens. Right. Yeah, definitely. And so let's talk about uh, rewards. Like, what are some ways that you can reward? Like, a lot, of, a lot of times we're talking about points. You know, you get points, and then, like, with Smash Up, if you get to a certain number of points, you win the game, right? Yeah. If you have a certain number of points with Ethnos at the end of the rounds, you win the whole thing. But what are some other ways, maybe besides points, that you can reward players to get them to do certain things? So, um, well, a big part of it is uh, some, some games, like those we've talked about, your whole thing is fighting for those majorities. It's the main thing you're doing in this game. While uh, some other games, like, for example, Gaia Project, the majority is secondary to what, what else you're doing. It's just a way to, um, uh, to, to sort of, um, it, it just obscures how many points something is worth or how much something is worth because you're not sure how much you're going to get in the end because there's going to be that majority aspect. Um, so that is one way to, um, give you another bonus. It just, it's not the main thing you're fighting for. It's just an extra added plus at the end. There's one game that's really not that well known that I really liked a lot. Uh, it's an old Zeman game called Power Struggle, where at the end of every round, whoever, so Power Struggle is a satire of the corporate world. And so you're fighting over different departments in a company and whoever controls, uh, each of the departments at the end of a round will get. A special action that only they can do for the for the next round so it's it's not you're not getting points for that it's just an, an extra an extra opportunity you have for the the, the following round and um yeah so it's, it's a different thing than just oh uh okay i, I go there i get points and um you know yeah i love how smash up also has this, this cool mechanism where when a certain card certain territory scores a, a, an event triggers or an ability triggers and it might be good and it might be bad depending on, you know, depending on the card. And it just, it creates a little bit extra incentive, a little bit extra reward. And maybe you want to really go for this card because it has a really cool ability and you want to win that. Or maybe you don't want to win this other one because it has a negative thing, but you want to help your opponent win that one by playing some cards that move their cards over there to it and things like that. Yeah. And so it's just interesting how you can create different rewards or consequences uh, for things scoring that kind of pushes players in different uh, directions. What are some ways, though, that you can limit the options? Like we've been talking about a lot of these games, it, it can be easy to fall into that analysis paralysis thing. And so how can you limit the information, limit the options going on? I think we've talked about a few things so far, but anything else that stands out yeah. as a way to just kind of limit the, the things on the table? Right. So personally, I'm a big fan of of, um, uh, of uh, input randomness to uh, take the, the 
the ludology term. Uh, so if you have something that happens before your turn, which those are your options for your turn. So for example, the cards that you draw in Smash Up or in Ethnos, those limit where you can play. And if you, you might just think, I really want to go in the blue territory, but if you don't have a single blue card in front of you, that's going to be hard, right? Uh, there's this uh, this dice game, Las Vegas, which I think is now called Vegas Dice uh, in its latest version, which every turn you're going to roll a bunch of dice and you have to choose one of the value of the dice that you rolled and put all of those dice in that majority uh, competition. So, you know, if you, again, you might want to roll, you might want to go to the six, but if you if you don't roll the sixes, then you're, you're not doing that. So it's a way to uh, limit what you can do without... Uh, you know, without players going, uh, feeling screwed up, uh, screwed out of what they wanted to do, because, you know, everybody has those same rolls of the dice, those same draws of cards. Yeah. And now with your prohibition game, it's a dice placement game. And so tell me, does it have that input randomness kind of thing you're talking about? It's a dice drafting game. So at the beginning of every round, you're going to roll uh, a pool of dice. Uh, you're going to roll nine dice and players are going to, one after the other, take one die for their movement, which is where they're going to be placing their, their uh, influence cubes and one die for your action. And so uh, because the pool of dice roll randomly at the beginning of the round, but then it doesn't move after that, you're always thinking about, okay, well, I want to be able to keep that majority. How can I keep my opponent from being able to go place cubes in that uh, neighborhood of the city? Uh, so I need to make sure they don't have access to a two, for example. So I'm going to draft away the two uh, and use it for my action because uh, that way I, they won't go there. And a cube they don't place there is like the equivalent of a cube I did place there, right? Um so that one is not, uh, well, I guess it is input randomness at the beginning of the round, but uh, it's also uh, like your opponent limiting the options that are available to you um, directly, which does lead to to analysis paralysis. So if that was the, the end goal, I did not achieve that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you've learned, you know, designing your own majorities based game that you could share with other, other designers as far as, you know, maybe advice or maybe things to avoid? Yeah, so so one one big thing that I, I've learned to my expense is uh, so majority game like we said in the beginning is you know how much you're going to put in, but you don't know how much you're going to get out of that, uh, which sort of uh, it, it makes it unclear how much something is worth, and it's what makes this adds this level of tension to to the game. However, um, if like me, you try to do something where the value of each of those majorities changes throughout the game and the players can affect those, then it becomes a, a, a mechanism where you don't know how much you're going to need to get that majority, and you also don't know how much it's going to be worth. So you're basically, every play becomes arbitrary because you know you don't know X and you don't know Y, so you, there's no way for you to solve uh, for the two, right? Yeah, definitely. That's that's something to think about. Now, any, any advice on how to fix that or how to avoid that or how to help players understand kind of the deeper things happening. Right. Well, I think it, it, it well, it, of course, like everything else in board game design, it, it comes out in play testing where you have players going, I don't know what to do. Uh, if it happens on the first turn of the first play, it's something. If after like an hour and a half game, you're stuck in, I still don't know what I'm doing, then you have to come to the conclusion that that's a problem, right? Um, I, I think it's, Either you, you have to make sure that there's a first-level strategy available to your players. Like in Ethnos, I want to go where uh, the numbers like where the numbers are bigger, right? That's my first-level strategy. In, in uh, New York Slice, I want to cut it in 
a way that balances out how many pepperonis are on each of the parts. Um, so there's like something that you can do when you don't have a better idea. And as your strategy becomes more refined and as you have a better idea of the board state of how the game is going to unfurl, then you can uh, start up from that first level strategy and then go into some deeper analysis and, and adapt what you're doing from there, I think. Gotcha. Now, as we kind of get ready to close this this episode out, one thing I'm really curious about is designing a game where majorities is the whole game, right? With Ethnos, that's the game. That is, that's basically all you're doing. You're trying to get majorities versus designing a game like Gaia Project where majorities are kind of a secondary thing. They're a little extra system going on, a little extra something to think about. What should I be thinking about from a design space, designing one or the other? Any, any thoughts on that? Well, I think it, 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 it's you're going to be thinking about the same thing about uh, when is it uh, evaluated? Why do I want, why would my players want to uh, invest into something early and uh, uh, how much, how bad is it if they don't manage to get that majority out of it? You're going to be asking yourself the same questions, but they're going to be for different purposes, right? And the majority game, that's all you're thinking about. So you can make those, those uh, decision points more crunchy. You can, push your players into having more stuff to consider in that. While if it's just like in Gaia Project or, or other games where you get a, a small extra thing for uh, that majority, well, then it's just uh, about not giving players the perfect information of, of something's worth so that they don't end up in that calculation thing and um, and, and making that uh, value uh, flow over time and then uh, uh, giving your players an opportunity to maybe um, uh, modify how much something is worth throughout the game while in, in the other one in a completely majority game it's going to be the main thing you're doing so it's how, about how much you uh, you can throw at your players um, before it becomes too much right yeah definitely well John this has been great do you have any kind of closing thoughts like what would you tell somebody that's maybe listening to this thinking I could design a majority game or maybe they've been working on one for a while what would be uh, your advice to them So I think it's uh thinking about the uh incentives that uh and how your players are going to be uh using those incentives to um to to uh take their decisions throughout the game but it's also about thinking why am I putting this this majority aspect here does it actually help uh what I want to do with this game, because sometimes people just, oh, majority sounds cool, and I'll just throw that in, and it, it won't break anything else. Um, but uh, if you use it purposefully and you think about uh, uh, what the decision space is and how not to make it too overwhelming for, for the space the majority will take in your design, then I think uh, it can be a real help. Awesome. Well, John, you got a game up on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the uh, two-minute elevator pitch for that one. Sure thing. So uh, the game is called uh, With a Smile and a Gun. It's a two-player dice drafting uh, area majority game. Uh, It's set in uh, sort of a noir uh, universe in the Prohibition era. And uh, so the players are fighting over control of the criminal underbelly of of the city. And um, so it's centered around this whole idea of, uh, you know, you have to be just as careful about the dice that you take for yourself as what you leave for your opponents so that they don't come and mess up your plans and you have to focus on when do I go out with a boom? When do I try to lay low and try to avoid attention? Uh, and there's, uh, there's also a solo variant uh, designed by uh, Carla Kopp, who I think was on your uh, on your uh, podcast not too long ago. And uh, yeah, so uh, that is on Kickstarter right now. And uh, 
come over and uh, back that if that sounds interesting. Very cool. Well, John, again, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the games and the Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Well, thank you for having me, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?